you jump into the text, we're going to be in Romans chapter 11 today. Uh, if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, you can. Uh, I'm going to be trekking through the entire chapter in this one day today. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult of a chapter to get through. As you've, if you've been trekking through Romans a little bit, you know that 9 to 11 is this really difficult section. Um, it's one that has a lot of commentaries and a lot of debates written around it. Not a whole lot of preaching for it. And, and I think you'll probably discover a little bit of why. But I've titled this one, From Wonder to Worship. From Wonder to Worship. And the reason I've titled it that way is because at the end of chapter 11, Paul is going to erupt, essentially, in this explosion of worship. It's going to be a hymn. It's going to be a song of worship. And it's going to be this song that you probably heard expressed maybe a number of times around here, maybe in church circles before. But Paul is essentially going to start singing at the end of this thing, saying, Oh, the depth of the riches of God both of his wisdom and of his knowledge. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's ever been his counselor, right? Like who's ever given gifts to God in order to be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever, amen. And my hope is that God is gonna meet you in the middle of wonder, in the middle of questions and move you from that place into this point of worship. And so the question that Paul's going to be dealing with here in this text at the very beginning, because he lands here at the end of chapter 11, but it's not where he begins. The place that he begins in chapter 11 is essentially this really, really tough question of wonder. It's the question that all uh, essentially first century believers, they're going to be coming into this church. It's going to be Jews and Gentiles gathering together, and they're going to be asking this question, okay, has God rejected his people? In the sovereignty of God, has God rejected his people, the nation of Israel, the Jews? Has he rejected the people? Because it seems like at this point in time in the text, what Paul's making this argument all about the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the, the entirety of what Paul, of what Paul is, is talking about here in this letter. And it seems like God is at this place where his favored people, his chosen people in the nation of Israel, seems like they've been rejected. He's coming off of chapter 8 here, where he makes a lot of really profound and big and beautiful promises promises here, which we love to quote. Uh, Personally, I love to preach chapter 8 because it's one of the most hopeful and uh, God-glorifying. I think it's just an incredible chapter here to preach, Uh, but essentially some really strong promises that don't seem like they're coming true. And so Paul's going to say things like, don't you know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes? And meanwhile, the Jew in the first century, even Gentiles watching and observing this entire thing, are going to be sitting there and they're going to be kind of skeptically going, okay, well, um, it doesn't really seem like he's working all things together for good right now. It doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like, thing, I, you think about the history of Israel, it's been, it's been judgment, it's been exile, it's been coming back, it's been repentance, it's been renewal, it's been wandering, and it's been all these different cycles uh, now they're in this place, and they're just sitting there going, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of good coming together at this time. Or even in chapter, a little bit later on in chapter 8, where Paul says, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. And some of us even today are kind of sitting there going, well, it seems like I've been separated from the love of God. Like the, the circumstances, the things that I'm feeling, like the things that are going on, the loss that I've experienced, the pain that I've experienced in my life, it seems like like, I've been separated from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the skeptic is coming in there and saying, okay, well, what about these things? Specifically, what about the Jews? These are his chosen people. It, it, like God made unconditional promises to their forefather, Abraham, in Genesis, right? He made unconditional promises. I'm going to give you land, people, blessing. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. However, as they sit in the first century, they're sitting there going, okay, overwhelmingly, the nation of Israel has rejected the promises of God. 
So has God rejected them in return? And so Paul's going to come and he's going to deal with that question throughout this thing. And as he answers that question, you're going to see this progression of thought. And you're going to see as the answers play out here, how he gets to this point of wondering and asking and wondering, really, this is about the faithfulness of God, right? If I wander from him, is he going to wander from me in the end as well? And you're going to see the progression of how Paul moves from wondering to worship. And my hope and my prayers is that some of us are sitting there today kind of going, okay, I've wondered the same things about me because it doesn't feel like there's goodness. It doesn't seem like there's faithfulness right now. Has God deserted me? That he's going to take you in that place and he's going to move you from there to a place of profound confidence in God where you sing along with the Apostle Paul, oh, the depth of his riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And so let's jump into it. Romans chapter 11. Uh, again, I'm going to go through the entire thing right here uh, a little bit at a time. I'm going to jump around quite a, a little bit here, but um, let's see. Uh, and so we're going to jump into it right here. Um, I'm just going to skip ahead for time right here and get to verse 1. But again, that's the question he's asking. Has God rejected his people? This is what he says in verse 1. What then? Has God rejected his people? Again, he's dealing with the objection and the question that people are going to be naturally um, asking at this point in time. And so he answers it very simply. He's going to answer it three different ways here. And again, you're going to see this progression here that leads to worship. But the first way he says, he says simply, by no means has he rejected his people. By no means. For I myself, verse 1, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And so I'm calling this one very simply the I'm a Jew too argument, right? This is essentially what Paul's saying right here. Has he rejected his people? No. I'm a Jew too. Like I'm an Israelite. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And, and, and he hasn't, he's clearly not rejected me. I'm very assured of God's love for me and how he's continuing to use me and the redemptive purposes of God uh, in this point in time in history. Like I'm very aware of these things. And so I'm not going to make a huge point of this one because it's not really the major thrust of where Paul goes in this chapter. Nevertheless, um, I think it is important and I think it's worth mentioning that Paul is moving from the bigger to the smaller right here. And he's not forgetting about the love of God for him. Right? So I don't want you to miss this, right? He's moving from the bigger to the smaller, and he is thinking about the reality of, hey, God hasn't rejected me. In other words, I'm not defined by what my people are doing out there. He's moving from corporate talk to personal understanding at this point in time, right? Like, I know that my people, on the whole, generally speaking, they've rejected Christ as the Messiah, they said, no, 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 that's not who we were expecting. It's not who we were longing for. But that doesn't define me. That doesn't define what God has done for me. That doesn't mean that God has stopped loving me or that God has not chosen me to have a purpose and a plan for my life right now. And so Paul's sitting there going, no, he hasn't rejected his people. Like, I'm a part of his people. I'm a Jew too. I don't know if you've ever seen um, the movie Luther or that's just a movie like Pastor's Watch or something like that. But it's, uh, it's about Martin Luther, the great, the, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther. But uh, there's a scene in there that I loved. I think it's a fascinating scene. And I think his entire story is pretty uh, crazy. It's, uh, it's an interesting story about how God, essentially, it's kind of like an Apostle Paul story where he's vehement in his opposition to God and then God transforms him and uses him for redemptive purposes in crazy ways. That's Martin Luther in a lot of ways. Um, his story later on, he's going to say, I, I was a monk, I was a very religious person, right? But I, nevertheless, in the early days, I hated God. I had, hated this idea that God was holy and that God was righteous and he was just. But then he was able to see a sinner like me. Because what I knew was that a holy and just and righteous God needed to judge the sin in my life. And that always terrified me. 
And so he goes, for the longest time, even while a monk, like I, I wrestled with God and I hated this idea of God and I, I just, I had a lot of strong opposition. And so there's a scene in this, in this movie that I thought was absolutely fascinating, but there's an older priest who's walking by Luther's room and he hears Luther wrestling. Luther was just, uh, he would spend hours in prayer talking to God out loud and he would get angry with him a whole lot. But he's, and so this priest hears Luther going back and forth and so he jumps in there and uh, Luther tells him, he goes, I, I live in terror of God's judgment every single day. He goes, I live, I live afraid of God's judgment every single day. And so the guy looks at him and he says, well, do you think that self-hatred is going to save you? This is what Luther's doing. He like, hated him. He scorned himself constantly. He was living in shame constantly. You think that self-hatred is going to save you? And so Luther comes back and he says, well, let me ask you this. Have you ever dared to think that God is not just at all? He's angry. Have you ever dared to think that God is not just at all? I mean, he has us born tainted by sin. And then he's angry with us all the time, all of our lives for our faults. This righteous judge who damns us and threatens us with the fires of hell. And then he goes, I, I know, I know, I know. I'm not supposed to think like that. I'm not supposed to talk like that. And the priest looks at him and he says, Martin, you're not, you're not evil for thinking that. You're just not really being fair in how you're thinking about it. God isn't angry with you. It's you who are angry with God. And so Luther says, you're right. I wish there was no God. I wish he wasn't like this. And so he asks back and he says, Martin, what is it that you're seeking from God? And he looks at him and he just simply says this. He's like, he's like, I want a merciful God. I need a merciful God, a God that I can love, and a God is going to look at me and love me back. And the guy fires back and he says, then you need to look at Christ. You need to look at Christ, bind yourself to him, and you will know that God who loves you in return. And the cool thing about his story is Luther's going to talk about how this is the time God began to really convince him of how deeply he was loved in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the scene plays out, and he just, he just falls on his face before God, and he cries out to him. He says, I'm yours, Lord. God, I'm yours. I, he didn't even understand the depths of God's love for him in Jesus as he would later understand throughout Paul's letter to the church in Rome here that we're going through right here. But he would just cry out and say, I'm yours, God. I'm yours. Save me. I'm all yours. And so that's how the story goes on. Luther comes back and he says, this is when God began to do a work of convincing me of how deeply I am loved in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Church, I don't want you to miss the role that this plays in worship. Everything else is going to craziness in, in his world. He's looking at there saying, hey, there may be a national rejection of him. There may be, be people walking away. But that doesn't change what God has done for me. I'm a Jew too. I came from this heritage. He has given me blessing. He has given me favor. He has seen me. He has called me out of my darkness. And he is using me in his redemptive purposes. I don't know if any of you guys need to hear that today. I just don't want us to miss that Paul is moving from the bigger to the smaller. And he's saying, you know what? He's here right now. He's loved me. He's loved me. And maybe you walked in here today, and that's been the difficult thing for you to grab. But Paul has this sense and this understanding that he may be doing a lot of things out there. And other people's faith, they don't necessarily define your own. And if God has given you his grace, you've come to him in faith, he sees you and he loves you and he is seeing you right now. And so this is where Paul goes. He's like, I'm a Jew too. Has he rejected his people? No. No. This is part of me too. Like, I'm part of this thing. So that's the first one. The second response that he gets into um, is really interesting, too. I'm just going to call this the remnant argument, okay? The remnant argument. This is where he goes in verse 2 here, but it's essentially this, that regardless of what's happening on a national level with the nation of Israel, he has always been faithful to preserve a remnant of believers 
And that remnant of believers is more than enough to accomplish his purposes in the world. Okay? Now, I'm going to say that again because you need to understand. Like, he's saying God has always been faithful to preserve a remnant. And that remnant of believers has always been more than enough to accomplish the purposes of God in this world. So this is what he says in verse 2. He says, God hasn't rejected the people that he foreknew. He has not rejected those people. Don't you know what the scripture says about Elijah and how he appeals to God against Israel? Now, if you're not familiar with Elijah's story, it goes back to about the 9th century B.C. He's a prophet in northern Israel. There's a divided kingdom at this point in time. Uh, he's a prophet during the time uh, where things are not going well for Israel. King Ahaz, uh, Queen Jezebel, all right, that, even that name still has negative connotations to this day, uh, largely because of what was going on in her life. She's paying off uh, these prophets of Baal, 400 plus, these prophets of Asherah. She's using the taxation, the tax, the tax money and, uh, and, and paying these prophets of Baal. They're tearing down uh, altars of worship at this time. Really bad time in the nation of Israel, so God raises up Elijah and Elijah comes, and, uh, and he makes an appeal to God, and he says this. He says, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they even seek my life. In other words, like Elijah's sitting there kind of going, okay, God, there's no one else in all of Israel that's following you anymore. Like, I'm alone. Elijah's sitting there kind of going, hey, there's been a shift from this people that are chosen by God, that are worshiping God, and being in this collective majority of people of faith, to now, all of a sudden, there's this thing culturally that's taken place where I'm no longer in the majority. In fact, it feels like I'm alone. In fact, they're actually tearing down the altars of worship which had previously been there in the past. In fact, they even want my life at this point in time. And this is the appeal that he's making to God at this point in time. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. And so how does God respond in verse 4? He says, Elijah, calm down. I've preserved 7,000 people who have not bowed to idols. In other words, I know that you feel like you're alone. You're not alone. In other words, like I, you're not the only person that I'm working redemptively throughout the world. It's not just about you, right? I know, I know, you think you're, I know that you think you're alone, right? And praise God that you're, you're being faithful to the calling I have for you, but you're not alone in this thing. There's other people and there's other believers that I've saved on the basis of grace too, there's 7,000 other people who have not bowed to idols. So he says in verse 5, Paul's commenting here, in the same way there is now a remnant who has also been chosen by grace. And hear me, church, this has always been the case throughout the history of the world. Has he rejected Israel? No, he's not rejected Israel. Like he's, there, he's always saved a remnant by his grace. In fact, the church, we are able to worship now as a church body because of the faith of that remnant. Every single one of the apostles were ethnically Jewish. Paul was Jewish all throughout the history of the world. There's always been a small but thriving Jewish community of believers. And so I love this point that he's making right here, especially as it relates to us today. Because like you and I are living in a time when we are feeling a little bit like Elijah. I don't know if you've ever felt like that before, where it seems like there's a shift going on culturally, whereas things that used to be majority kind of accepted and embraced are no longer really embraced. You ever felt that before? Right? You get an email from a school district saying, hey, there's books over here that don't align with what I naturally believe or what I believe God says is true. Or maybe there's something going on over here. Like we, we, we see this all the time. Like we're reading about Gen Z and how they're ditching their faith at twice the rate of millennials, which is three times the rate of Gen X. In other words, things are not going in the right direction, right? And when we sense that culturally, how it plays out, your values are not necessarily shared. It's not necessarily popular to be a follower of Jesus Christ today. Like maybe it 
maybe it was at some point in the future or, or in the past at, in different places and things like that. The fastest growing religious affiliation among people under 30 is the rise of the nuns, meaning we have no religious affiliation or anything like that. Meanwhile, if history is showing us right here that God can do a lot through the remnant. This is what he's saying right here. Like this is, this is what he's showing us, that God can do a lot through the remnant of believers who have been marked by his grace, saved by his grace, and are now choosing to walk by that faith every single day. What he's saying right here and showing us throughout history, he's never needed us to be in the majority. He's never needed our power. He's never needed our might. He's never needed the fullness of human wisdom. He's never needed all of the greatness of your gifts. He's never needed our things because God is more than sufficient to work through the remnant. You know, in the church, like if you're among the remnant in the first century, I mean, think about how this has played out throughout all of history. If you're among the believing remnant of Jews in the first century, who would have thought that within 200 years, the Roman Empire, the vicious, brutal, pluralistic, idolatrous, sexually perverse Roman empire would become the center of Christianity. This started with the remnant of Jewish believers in the first century coming, passing on the faith to the Gentiles, going out and spreading it all around the world, uh, all throughout the book of Acts and things like that. But this is what happens when a, when a group of remnant Gen, uh, Jewish believers come and take the gospel, take this message, hey, Jesus is alive. And they go from place to place to place to place, continue to share the faith. Like, who would have thought that that would have taken place? This is what God does, church. He always works through the remnant. He's never needed our power. He's never needed us to be in majority positions or any of these kinds of things. Like, I mean, who would have thought in the fourth century that God would move from Rome at that point in time and he would move to English-speaking people who were considered barbarians and savage tribesmen at that time. They were not sophisticated people throughout the world. Who would have thought that, the, that that would be where God moves next? Who would have thought that when Europe went secular, like who would have thought that there would be a small little upstart country in the West called the United States that would go on to become the largest missionary-sending country in the history of the world? Who would have predicted some of the places that God is blowing up and working the most today? Places like, places like China, places like Cuba and Latin America and all throughout Africa. Places that have traditionally been hostile to the gospel. Turkey, I'm looking at you guys right now, like places and pockets blowing up over there too. But like we're hearing about this, like who would have predicted that God would be working in some of these areas of the world that have been traditionally hostile, maybe even closed off to the gospel. But this is what he does, church. He raises up a remnant and then he works through the faith of that remnant to bring about his purposes and to bring about his glory. Church, this is what he does. Every single revival the world has ever known began with a remnant. It's the nature of revival, right? You're looking around at the world and you're saying things are not as they should be. God is not being glorified as he deserves to be. And you're sitting here kind of saying, hey, there's a small pocket of believers. There's a small remnant of believers, even if it's not the specifically Jewish remnant in the first century. But we're sitting here kind of going, things are not as they should be. Every single revival began with a remnant of people who have been marked by God's grace and then continue to live by that faith every single day, no matter the circumstances around them. 1857, it was a businessman in New York named Jeremiah Lanfear. Not clergy, not an evangelist, not a pastor. A businessman in New York looking around saying, things are not as they should be. God deserves more glory. And so, Father, what would you have me do? 1857, he starts opening up a room and inviting business people to come and start praying, God, would you do a work among us, which we cannot do for ourselves? 
That movement grows from 20 people to 40 people the next week to 60 people the next week to moving from weekly gatherings to daily gatherings, not only in New York City, but in cities all around the world. Church, God begins a movement right there where nearly 1 million people were added to the church's roles that year. Within the church movement, there was nearly one, uh, 25%, 1 million of about 4 million church members at that point in time came to faith in Jesus. In other words, they were sitting in the pews realizing, you know what? I never understood this grace of God. I never understood what God has done for me through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what he does, church. He works through the remnant. He works through the small. He works through the weak. He works through the tiny people that are willing to cling to a majestic and powerful and all-powerful, all-knowing God, claiming that he walked out of that tomb alive and he conquered sin and death. And church, I'm telling you today, if there is a believing remnant among us today, like, there's no limit to what he can do through us. There's hope in this message. I don't know if you've ever felt like Elijah that day. If you've ever sat there and looked around and you're like, I know it's not true, but it, you know, God, it feels like I'm alone right now. It feels like I'm alone in my family my friend group, on my street. And I want you to see, Paul sees the power of God in this moment. And he says, you know, no, no, you don't need the majority. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the almighty, all-powerful, all-glorious God who's given you grace in Jesus. You have the message of the truth of the gospel that can set people free. You may be in the remnant, but if you have Jesus and you have his Holy Spirit, you have more than enough. And this is what Paul is pointing us back to right here. No, 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 you think God's rejected his people? No, it's just smaller than you what you wanted, right? You, you, are you depressed today because the church seems to be shrinking? I promise you, church, we have more than enough. We have everything that we need for life now and for all of eternity. And for God to do a work in you and me that this city is never the same about before because we're going out there sharing the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with people that are longing to understand this love. I promise you we have more than enough. And this is where Paul goes. Like I'll never forget my conversation with Greg Mott back in the day. Greg Mott uh, was the founder of Breakaway Ministries at Texas A&M. And uh, he started, it's a um, Breakaway Ministries, if you're not familiar with it, is uh, the largest college Bible study in the country today. Obviously, it was not always the case. Back when I was there in 2002, it was a little bit smaller. It was still what I considered a very, very large Bible study at that time. And I heard about Greg. He'd been around. I'm missing my dates. I've been maybe five or six years or so at that point in time. But I remember taking him to breakfast and saying, Greg, tell me about the beginning of this ministry. I got to know, like, what, how, did, how did all of this come about? And Greg goes, man, he goes, I, I remember being a freshman in, at A&M. And I remember sitting there walking around feeling like, man, there's no student organizations that are, like, students aren't coming to church. They're not worshiping Jesus. And he goes, I felt like I was alone. He goes, I started praying and asking God every single day, God, would you do a work through me here at this campus by the time that I graduate and leave this place, that it would be a Christian university overwhelmingly. And every single day, he, he would take a sleeping bag and he would put it at the, uh, the door front of his dorm room. As a reminder, hey, I've got to step over this thing. And as I enter into the world, I'm reminded of this prayer that I've been praying every single day. But he says, Father, use me to bring about your glory here at Texas A&M. And so he goes, I started with a remnant. He didn't say that word. I'm using it right here. He goes, I found a community of people here at A&M. We started worshiping. We started praying together. I challenged them to invite some friends. And then it quickly started outgrowing our apartment. We started going to this community center. 
We quickly outgrew the community center. We went to Central Baptist Church, giant Baptist church. We started doing one service. We started doing two services. Then when I was there, they were doing services at Rudder Arena, which was a thousand, probably a 1,500, something like that seat auditorium, right? It was just blowing up. At that time, they moved out of there. They were building Reed Arena, which is where they play basketball today. And remember Greg saying, now they're building our future place to gather. He's looking at this basketball court saying, this is what God wants to fill. And by God's grace, it's exactly what he wants us to do. Church, like this is what he does. He works through the remnant. He works through a small gathering of people, individuals coming together that are empowered by the Holy Spirit with the greatest news of the world has ever heard. And he accomplishes his purposes. And he doesn't need our majority He doesn't need our power. He doesn't need any of those things. He wants your faithfulness. And that's what he's calling us to here in this text. A small gathering of Jewish believers that are saying, you know what? My brothers and sisters ain't on board. I am. I know what God has done for me. I know the grace that he's lavished upon me in Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the King of Kings. Yes, my people may have walked away. I'm not walking away. And so that's the answer to this question. He simply says, okay, has he rejected his people? No, I'm a Jew too. <laughs> he hasn't rejected me. No, uh, uh, he's always preserved a remnant. And what we've seen in the redemptive purposes of God throughout history is that it's been more than enough to accomplish his ways. And so the third response that he gets into here I think is really fascinating. And so he gets into this and he simply, I'm just going to call this the, the um, Israel, still got an, Israel still has an awesome future argument. <laughs> you like that one? It's really, really sophisticated, short, and simple. Um, Israel has an awesome future argument. And this is where he goes next right here. Essentially, Paul is going to explain three stages of God's redemptive plan here that is still being worked out in time. But the first stage is essentially that God is using Israel's rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not believing in Jesus as the Messiah here, but he's saying God is using their rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring redemption and restoration to the Gentiles, who are everybody who is not ethnically Israel. And so this is part of what God is doing in his sovereign purposes and through his power, um, the ways that he works all things together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Again, that's the context of this passage that he's getting into here. But he's saying, you know what? God's going to use that. He's able to take the rejection of the gospel and bring about greater glory for his name in the people of the Gentiles. This is what he says in verse 11. Let me ask it again. Did they stumble over Jesus simply that they may fall? No. Rather, through their trespass, meaning the Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make them jealous. In other words, because they missed it, more and more Gentiles were able to receive it. How that works out, it's pretty mysterious. I think you see some of this take place in the first century. It's what we see all throughout the book of Acts. The apostles, these Jewish believers, they bring the gospel into the synagogues first. Do you remember this? They go to the synagogues first. They preach the gospel. It's received by a remnant, overwhelmingly rejected by most of the people in that synagogue. And what does it do? It compels them to go into the marketplace, into the world, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ where everybody else is receiving it. This is how the gospel spreads all over the place. And so this is what he's saying right here. J.D. Greer puts it like this. He says, imagine if in every town the whole synagogue had been converted. The apostles may have grown complacent, never gotten out to the city, and Christianity could have easily remained a Jewish thing that never made it out of Jerusalem. And so this is kind of what's going on. It continues to spread into the marketplace. And so that's the first stage right there, that God in his sovereignty is using their rejection to bring about uh, gospel receptivity to the Gentiles right here. The second stage is that at some point in the future, the Gentiles' faith is going to make the Jewish people jealous. 
And this is the word that he uses right here. It sounds like a terrible thing. Shouldn't be jealous or anything like that. Yet there is a godly jealousy. There's a holy jealousy here. Um, J.D. Greer explained it like this, and I liked his image here. But um, he said, imagine that, uh, imagine that your grown children were to walk away from your family. They rejected you. They ran away. They're in college or something like that. They say, hey, mom, dad, I want nothing to do with you ever again. Uh, you continue your family. You've got other siblings at home. And, and, uh, and so Christmas comes. It's years later. You're having Christmas with the family. And these children come back. And they're sitting at the, they're sitting at the window looking into your home on Christmas morning. And they see you having Christmas morning with the rest of your kids. And they're opening up presents. And they're laughing. And they're playing. And they're having a good time. And in the middle of that moment, they sit there and they say, wow, that should have been me. All of that love, all of that affection, all of that affirmation, all of that family love right there, like that should have been me. And it leads them to this place where then they go knock on that door and say, Mom, Dad, may I come home? What Paul is saying right here is that there's going to be a sense, one day still future, in which many are going to realize, I've missed it. We have missed it. There's going to be a sense in which one day the Israelites will look at this thing and they're going to realize how... We missed it. The, the, the Messiah was here. He came to me. He was here. He was the Jewish carpenter. Like, that's, where he was, that's, that's where he's from. Like, this is what he does. Like, we missed it. How did we miss it? And what Paul's saying right here is the way that they're going to understand that they missed it is through the witness, through the testimony of the Gentile people, these people that are walking with Jesus Christ and they're loving him and God's loving them and he's working mightily and powerfully through them, bringing his grace into them. And in the middle of that witness, they're going to be able to look at that. And with this holy jealousy, number three is that they're going to return to God once again. And the, the, the beautiful part of this is it says that, that, that God is going to use their faith. And God is going to use this national return, which is whatever that may look like, the holistic return of Israel to the promises of God and bring about his purposes in ways that you and I can't even imagine. This is what he says here in verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches to the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, then how much more will their full inclusion mean? What Paul's saying right here is like, if God worked through the rejection of him, can you imagine what he's going to do when his people return to him once again and they're sitting there going like, this is the Messiah. We see it now. All of the Old Testament promises that were, that were pointing to him, like we see it in Jesus once again. Church, can you imagine what this day is going to be like? Like, can you imagine, like, if, if, if there's been a global spread of the gospel because of their rejection? Like, what is it going to be like when they're sitting there proclaiming, this is the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Like, oh, wait, the, the, the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world, like, that was Christ upon the cross. Like, when are, what's it going to be like when they're giving testimony to these things, saying, like, his sacrifice was the one that was sufficient once and for all. All of our different worship practices, our traditions, all the different festivals that we're all pointing to the Messiah. He is the one. He is the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. Like, honestly, church, can you imagine what it's going to be like when, nationally speaking, there is repentance, there is bowing before the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, and we get to lock arms with them and come together as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, giving testimony to the fact that God has sent his son Jesus for you and for me, that we can live in and through him. Can you imagine what that day is going to be like? Can you, and what he's saying right here is, can you imagine and think about what God is going to be doing in the redemptive purposes of the world when that agreement happens to be there too? Verse 15, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? 
Verse 25, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, which we talked about a few weeks back, how God uses our hardening sometimes to accomplish his purposes in ways that we can't imagine. But he says in verse 26, in this way, all of Israel will be saved. All of Israel will be saved. And there's a lot of debate, right? Does it mean all or does it mean all or is majority all? And either way, you're looking at it right here. What he's saying right here is there's a glorious, glorious future ahead for his people because of the promises that he made to his forefathers and Abraham right here. And so Paul continues in here. He continues. And, and, and this is when you can really see Paul's heart move from wonder to worship in this text because you, you see him, all this thing, all of his processing just culminates in this eruption of joy when he simply says, Oh, the depth of the riches of God. Like both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. In other words, he's sitting there kind of going like, I know there's questions about what he's going to be doing in the future. And I know there's debate about these things. And I know that there's question about what he's doing with his people, the nation of Israel. I know there's all these kinds of questions. But like what kind of God chooses mercy over obedience? Like what kind of God does this? Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. And he's sitting there just dwelling upon God, all of his depth, all of his wisdom, all of his knowledge, all of his beauty, and is leading him to worship the resurrected king of all kings and lord of all lords. He's sitting there going like, what kind of knowledge is able to see this entire thing play out long before the foundation of the world and then work it all together for our good? Who does that? Like, who knows how this is going to play out? This is taking place. He was telling Moses back in the day that your people are going to reject me, but guess what? The Gentiles are going to come in, and it's going to play out. Like, who knows that way back in Moses' day and is able to work this all together for our good? Who does that? Like, whose ways are to always preserve a remnant, always, and then use the faith of that remnant, not the power of the majority, not all of our strength, not all of our wisdom, not all of our things, but who uses a remnant and a small number of people? Who uses weakness to be shown strong? Who uses those things to go and accomplish his ways? Like, who does that? Who tells, who tells Gideon here, you know, I think your army's too big. I'm going to need you to reduce it now to about a tenth of the size of your enemy's army. Like, who does that in the Old Testament? What kind of God shrinks our capacities here so that he can be proven strong? Like what kind of God chooses a ragtag group of unimpressive remnant outcasts like Andrew, Peter, James, and John who are fishermen, not the who's who of people in the world that day, not the most intellectual, not the most revered people. Like who uses those kinds of people? Who uses the women that were following Jesus at that time who had zero natural credibility, culturally speaking, at that time? Like, what kind of God chooses them to bring about the greatest renewal this world's ever seen? Like, who does that? Like, what kind of God tells Elijah, I know you feel like you're alone, but I'm going to need you to go up against 400 prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Asherah. I'm going to need you to douse this sacrifice in water during a three-year drought. So that I can rain fire and show everyone who's watching here that I alone am God. Who does that? What kind of God does this? Like what kind of a savior rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey? Like where the Romans are coming in on the other side with an army. Who does that? What kind of a God is this? Paul's looking at this thing saying like I don't understand all the depth of his riches. Both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Like what kind of wisdom looks past our disobedience? A disobedience to put Jesus upon a cross. And then who takes that act of disobedience and turns it around into our blessing? What kind of God does this? 
J.D. Greer says it like this. He says, the great irony of the gospel is that you and I live through the death of the God that we murdered. What kind of God is this? And Paul's just looking at him saying like, oh, the death of the riches. Both of the wisdom, the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And he explodes in worship just thinking, God, what could be going on in the mind of that God? Church, like this is what drives worship. It's not looking around at the circumstances of our day, saying, you know what, we're in the majority, things are going well for us. It's not what's happening with your family. It's not what's happening with your friends out there primarily, although it does matter. It's beholding the fullness of God and getting caught up in the depth of his riches. How unsearchable are his judgments. I can't even imagine it. It's looking at the stars of the sky saying that is just a flash in the pan compared to all that he's created. He speaks and this God brings things into existence, universes we haven't even discovered yet. Like all the mathematical equations we're coming, like they're, they're not a fraction of the mind of God. And he's getting just fixed on this God saying, I'm just erupting in worship. There's nothing else I can possibly imagine worth doing. For from him are all things, and through him are all things, and to him are all things, all for the praise and for the glory of his name. Church, that is how you get to worship in the middle of wondering, God, have you rejected this? What are you doing in the middle of this thing? You fixate on the God who is wonderful, who is glorious, who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-together wonderful. And you allow your mind to go there and just erupt in worship. This past week, I think we were, um, and we, we may be the last family in the country who's watched this series, The Chosen. <laughs> um, have you guys seen this? On uh, You may need to rent it now and pay for it. It used to be free, and I'm probably the last one who saw it. I'm a pastor, and I repent of that, but... Um, we're watching this this past week, and, uh, and Caleb looks last night, and he asked me the question before bed. He's like, Daddy, why is it that when people meet Jesus for the first time, he's like, they seem to just cry. Why is it that all these people just, they break down, and they don't know what to say, and they're just like, they're just like awestruck, and they just cry. And he's like, this is it. This is Mary Magdalene, right? Like, she's just forever changed. She meets Jesus forever changed, and she's just like, I'm following you? Yeah, I'm going I'm to follow you. It's Matthew, tax collector Matthew. Come and follow me, sure. I'm just going to drop it all. He's like, why is it that people just cry when they meet Jesus? We had to have an incredible conversation just about happy tears, about happy tears. And now sometimes when something or someone makes us so happy, we just get overwhelmed in joy, and we just weep. And this is where Paul is at the end of this chapter. Oh, wow. The depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, worship can be yours today. You know that? No matter what's happening in the world around you, no matter if you feel like things may be shrinking in your world, no matter if you feel like you're alone, worship can be yours today. If you'll just fixate upon him, the God who loves you and sees you no matter what. The God who is always working powerfully in and through you. He can use your faith. He can use the faith of a remnant. Go and literally change the world. You, worship can be yours today if you'll fixate upon him. Father, we love you, God. We praise you. We worship you this day. And we simply say thank you. God, I can't even imagine the depths of your wisdom, your knowledge, your goodness, your mercy. God, it seems to never run out. 
God, they never go away. We praise you, God. We thank you. And for the person that's coming today that has been asking the same question, Father, have you rejected me? Have you rejected maybe the church? Have you rejected my family member? God, may we see with the resounding agreement that the answer is no. That we'd always look upon the cross and see a God who, in his infinite love for humanity, sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come and to live and die as a substitute for us, that we could live with him for all of eternity. Father, may we understand that. May we see that. May we be caught up in the wonder and the beauty and the mystery of who you are, how you think, how you order the redemptive narrative throughout history, God, how you use us today, how you do the impossible constantly through faith, through men, women, and children who are willing to simply walk by that faith today. God, we love you, Lord. We praise you. We worship you and we thank you today. God, would you help us to see you, to be caught up in that wonder, and then to turn our lives around and to give them all back to you for your praise and for your glory. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.